This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 80. And the quote of the day is from Harrison Ford, who said, All I would tell people is to hold on to what was individual about themselves and not allow their ambition for success to cause them to try and imitate the success of others. You've got to find it on your own terms. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I want to thank the sponsors for today, Boso Drumsticks. They make the world's only line of bamboo drumsticks and i am a i'm a boso artist but i'm also part of boso i work with dave the owner closely on developing the artist relations program and everything so full transparency uh you know i i do uh work with the company i don't work for the company but i work with them um so just want to let everybody know that. But to do this podcast, it costs money to pay for the subscription, to pay for different advertising, for to pay for different things. And Boso has been generous enough. Dave has been generous enough uh, from Boso Drumsticks to to support and to sponsor the podcast. And the greatest part about it is if you go to BosoDrumsticks.com and use the word podcast at checkout the promo code podcast you'll save 20 percent off your entire order so check them out definitely bosodrumsticks.com the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks trust me you'll dig them you'll love them i do uh just check them out so there's that so thank you for boso for sponsoring the podcast also if you are looking to step up your online game you got to have the pro tools to do it. So check out drummersresource.com forward slash checklist. And I'll send you the top six things you definitely need to be considered a pro if you really want to market yourself online and get your name out there, get for more followers and, and more exposure and ultimately more gigs. So let's get into the interview. The interview that I got today, I'm super, super, super excited about. I got the one and only... Mike Clark, the funky godfather, Mike Clark, who is one of my favorite drummers of all time, and he has played with Herbie Hancock. He is, I mean, I'm I'm not even going to go through the, all the, the lists of all the people that he played with because we'd be here for an hour, but if you've ever heard the tune Actual Proof by Herbie Hancock, you will realize why I'm calling him the funky grandfather or the funky godfather, excuse me. But uh but he also gets into his whole bebop and post-bop stuff that he really really digs and uh and but we're going to get all into that in this interview. I'm sort of rambling. I apologize because I'm just I'm really really excited about this interview. Uh, like I said, Mike Clark is one of my favorite drummers of all time. So I'm going to get right into it. You can stop listening to me by myself and let's start talking to Mike Clark. Here we go. Mike, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. What's going on? Everything is cool. How are you? Oh. And thank you for having me, I might add. Absolutely, man. I got I to gotta be forthright and honest with you. You are uh, one of my favorite drummers of all time, so it's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, bro. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I know... I know that the audience knows who you are and knows about you, but I always like to get the backstory of how people got into playing. And I heard a crazy story that you like learned how to play one day and then that night went down to play a gig 
and like killed it or something like that. But I just I just want to get a, a brief backstory of of how you got into playing and and how you really you know got on this path of playing drums. Okay, well, um, first of all, my father was a drummer and he always had uh, records, jazz records, boogie woogie records, and uh, jump kind of blues records playing around the house like all day, every day. So that was the, uh, and there was also a drum set there. So uh, at one point I walked over to the drum set. I'd been listening to this music inadvertently because I'm in the house and uh, even at the times when I couldn't walk and what have you, I was, uh, <laughs> they were playing the music all the time. It was just party music. And so when his friends would come over, you know, they would uh, always uh, listen to the music and hang. So uh, one day I went over to the drum set and uh, I seemed, I remember doing it. I was four years old. I can actually remember it. I got a weird memory that really works well. That is crazy because I can't remember what I did four days ago. So four years old well, is I, out of the question. I know. It's weird. I, well, sometimes <laughs> I'm like that too, but um, I can remember way back. Anyway, I have no idea why. It's just one of the you know uh, things I got going on where there are some other things where I'm, I don't have it going on so good. Right. <laughs> so, But I, I know I walked over to the drums and I just started playing and I played kind of a Gene Krupa Tom Tom type rhythm on, uh, and it all made sense and it sounded kind of like the records. It was close and um, uh, it was simple, but it was a, but it didn't sound like a kid beating on something. It was like it sounded like a guy. It sounded like a drummer. Right. So my father was like, you know, he was elated. He was like, really? And so he took me that night uh, because he was a musician. He wasn't a great drummer. And by now he was working on the railroads. But he took me that night. Uh, that night took me that night to my friend to one of his friends gigs and had me sit in and I played Sweet Georgia Brown and took a big solo and everything. I remember standing, I had to stand up to reach the pedals <laughs> and all of this type of thing. But um, that's how it went. I don't know whether I killed it or anything like that, but it was obvious to everybody that I was a drummer. You know what I mean? It was that's like insane, not though. I mean, like, just the fact that, that you could do that and, not, you know, because most people sit down and it's like they can't even figure out where to, put their feet and you know their hand they don't know what to do with their hands or or anything and the fact that the first time you ever played you could just go down and play this gig with your you know or you know sit in on this gig is pretty amazing i seem to know how to play the tom tom thing i knew several kids uh that were four and five that could play the kind of the gene krupa type tom tom thing you know what i mean and right. uh and I was one of them. I don't know whether I knew to play the ride cymbal when the band was playing. I think I played more of like the, the Dixieland march thing on the snare that I saw my father play, which was kind of, I guess, a takeoff on the New Orleans thing now that I know more about it than I did it for. You right, know? Right. But I, it was all there. I mean, I, I think I was on the right side of the beat, and it was cooking, and I played a pretty good little solo, and my hands seemed to know what to do. Right. And even as I grew older, by the time I was eight and nine, I could play uh, a lot of really good adult-sounding, professional-sounding bebop stuff and stuff like Louis Belson. And, uh, you know, I was in a couple of different camps. I liked Gene and Louis and Buddy, but I also really, really loved Max and uh, and Philly Joe my, and Art Blakey. So I was trying to be like, I was trying to learn what those guys were doing and in those days, we didn't do transcriptions. We never wrote anything out. So you just made your own way up of doing it, and I'm still that way. I right. still play that way. I never write out, so-and-so did this, so I'm going to write it out. I just mm -hmm. kind of get in the ballpark there somewhere and play my version of what 
when I heard that I liked just the vibe. I catch the vibe and then do whatever. You right. Know? <clears throat> right. Now, did you do? Did you go like the rudiment way? Did you did you study with people and and go that way, or were you all self taught and just listening to records and figuring it out? Self taught, figuring out, listening to records. But at one point, I went to a guy to learn how to read when I was seven or eight, and he was really impressed with my hands because uh, at that point I was playing fairly well for a kid that age. I was on a couple of TV shows, and I could I could really solo and all this type of thing. And so uh, we went through the rudiment books together, but I could play him almost, uh, I could play him better than I could read him. Like, right, it was not a problem to play double paradiddles and paradiddles and doubles and all of this type of thing, flam. I was kind of already doing that. Now, did you know, you know what, what you were playing, though? Like, did you know you were playing a double paradiddle or whatever the case may be? I had no idea, but I'd listen to those guys on the record, and then I would just try to make, and I had a drum set, uh, so I tried to make it sound like what they were doing, and I just kind of did most of the stuff I was doing was pretty, as it turned out, was pretty good, was pretty close, pretty damn close, yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then I got into reading and l learning all that stuff and getting it um, in much better shape, but it was, I gotta say, you know, well, people grow at different times. I know artists that sound kind of okay and then when they're 21 till the time they're 28 or 9 or 30 or so they grow and they become fantastic and other guys get really good at a really young age or in their teenage you know goes all right. kinds of different way happens all kinds of different ways if you <laughs> stick to it i know? think i'd rather go the other i think i'd rather get better as i got older not be better when i was younger <laughs> yeah i i i i would i could i've tried to improve myself all the time uh, and I end up improving myself conceptually musically and uh, um, s always trying to swing harder and deeper and better and thicker and fatter and you know whatever but um, uh, certain things that I uh, a certain thing was already formed by the time I was five or six or seven and that thing is already is still there and sometimes I'd like to completely get away from that the place that I originally come from and play some completely different stuff, but I, I can't seem to, it seems to be, I can't change it. Right. You know, mm. you know, <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you want to try something different. It's just your body is, and your brain is telling you, Nope, this is you do. This is what you do. <laughs> yeah. In other words, it's hard for me to get my technique past where I already am. A, I'm older and I have a lot of, uh, I have some arm problems and stuff from playing the ride pattern for like, you know, 50, 60 years or whatever it's been. And the other thing is um, uh, I, um, I got to a certain point early where I could play, if I wanted a burst of speed, I could do it quite easily. But I've never been able to go past that, which seemed fast, not that fast is what we're talking about. But, you know, you want to play slow, right. medium, and fast. But now so. those guys go into these super hyper fast zones that I could never get I can't there's no way <laughs> man I just I'm I'm the same way man I just I can't I can't do it it's like I can't you know I can't dunk a basketball and I can't <laughs> yeah certain it, things are just not going to happen this in this incarnation right. I know I had my single stroke roll um uh up to about 113 or 115 30 second notes, which is quite fast. Sure. But I could never get to 120 or like Buddy Ranch or 100. And these guys now can really. I mean, I was never thinking about it that way anyway. I was always thinking about things from a jazz perspective. But since I have students that challenge me, then I'm some. At times, I get involved in this madness. Right. Right. And it's not, you know, it's like a it's a headroom thing too. You know, if, 
If yeah, you can well, play at 140 true. or 150 and you never go above 115, man, you could play that all night. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. So anyway, I mean, though, I don't really have uh, goals as far as speed, but I did try to uh, keep up with some of my students and try to push my hands to the level that some of them can play, and uh, it's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to happen because I put a lot of time into it, you know. You know. I remember seeing some videos of you on Facebook, and you were posting them, you know, like like every couple days, and you're like, here's, you know, working on this pad, working on this pad. Yeah, I, me and Steve Smith were doing that together. We were kind of goofing around, but it was like, yeah, I was getting it really going. And it became a challenge and a diversion from the type of thing I normally play. And I enjoyed doing it. But then I got to a point where I started injuring my, like, tendon, tennis elbows started showing up and stuff. So I cooled it. I'm like, okay, wow, that's geez. not. I, I, and quite frankly, on a jazz gig, I don't know where I'd ever play anything like that anyway. I mean, I'm sure that the other artists, saxophone players, trumpet players, whatever, would be like, what are you doing, man? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So it was more like a gymnasium thing, but it was fun while it lasted. It was kind of different. Right, right, right. So I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, when you were saying you were eight and nine, you were playing uh, in different TV shows and stuff. Where were you living at the time? It, uh, McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Oh, and, really? that's uh, right. I'm from Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I lived in McKeesport at that point. Uh, and then also uh, we would go down to Atlanta, Savannah, New Orleans and spend three and four months at a time because – he was railroading, so he would be uh, uh, shipped into um, you know, shipped to different parts of the country, and we just roll with him. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. Um, because- uh, so I got a lot of oh, and then uh, and quite a few times in Texas. So I had a blues background just from living in those places. Like the, it was hard to get jazz gigs, even as a kid. Uh, even as a teenager, I ended up meeting a guy that put me on a bunch of blues gigs so i always needed bread so i didn't say no sure. you know so that was cool that was cool it was good for me for some know. reason i thought that you were from oakland and i don't know why I'd... well i was born in sacramento i'm a california guy okay and then we left by the time i was seven we left and traveled a lot but then when i came back to california uh i uh, i graduated from high school in california and i moved down to the bay area so I got you. Uh, I got yeah, you. and when I made my mark, such as it is, whatever you want to call it, when I became uh, known in the in the industry, it was uh, in Oakland, that, and it was for I was known for being um, one of the pioneers of the so-called Oakland drum style. You know? Right. <clears throat> so yeah, that's how that. So the word, the term, the the name Oakland has stayed with me. <laughs> right, right. And well, the reason why I was going to ask is because. You and Dave Garibaldi are the same age. You guys were born like a month apart from each other. Who's older, him or me? Um, when were you born, November or October? No, October. Okay, he was born in November. Okay, all right. You got it by a month. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. So you're the true pioneer, you can tell. So um, so was there was there a bunch of, of competition between you and Dave in Oakland, or were you guys friends, or were you guys kind of developing this thing together, or? How did that go? No, in? well, it was really interesting. I was a complete bebopper at the time. I was submerged in the bebop scene and post-bop scene. I was playing with Woody Shaw, Bobby Hutcherson, uh, Chet Baker, and, and and whoever else didn't famous or not famous. It didn't matter. I was 
doing a we played seven nights a week in those days. There was so much work, and I, I wasn't interested. I didn't even think about playing the style of funky thing. I mean, every once in a while, I'd get an organ gig, and we'd play Mercy, Mercy, and I'd make up those beats that I did with Herbie. I did those beats for years. That was just my way of addressing that, right? right. And I'd never heard David Garibaldi. And um, so Paul Jackson and I, the bassist, he was actually an upright jazz bass player on his way to becoming one. And he worked at a store called Sherman and Clay. And we shared a big uh, crib, a big pad together out in East Oakland. And all the musicians would come by in there and would come by and jam. We had a B3 in the place and the whole thing. And it was kind of the epicenter for all the guys. And um, what happened was uh, he brought over to the music room an electric bass one day and it sat in there for years for a year one year and then one day he picked it up and he played exactly the way you hear him play on thrust and headhunter really and, he, and yeah and i remember saying to him, <laughs> he, he just took it right out of the case and started right in and i said if you're going to play bass like that you need to play guitar and he got all mad at me <laughs> <laughs> and uh he said play some of that stuff you play uh, with, uh, on the organ gigs, play some of that double time stuff he called it then, which really was just 16th notes. Sure. And uh, I would break it up all throughout the drum set. And I just did it. And so him and I started doing gigs. And so that style that him and I play had been around. We'd been doing that for a long time. One time, Paul and I, he also played B3, played an organ duo in a club. And there was a band setting up in the club next door. We went next door to hear them, and it was David Garibaldi in the Tower of Power. And uh, he had just joined them, I believe, and he knocked me out. I loved what he was doing. Now, we're not really that similar at all. Uh, we're from, I'm from a jazz background. I'm not sure whether he is or not, but he plays, even though we do play a 16th note thing, it's, we're very different. Sure. And no, I was never competitive with him. I dug him right away, and I dig him to this day. I think he's brilliant, and he's funky, and and uh, and he's a dear friend. And I totally dig Garibaldi. I'm a fan, as a matter of fact. But we didn't. Uh, I wasn't looking at it that way at all. When I met him, I was actually not that interested in funk. I do it to make a living. If I, you know, and you're not going to sure. turn any gigs down, you right, know. Right. At, at that age and at that time period. So, but I wasn't thinking, I had no idea I was going to get to gig with Herbie Hancock and be known for this. I, I was completely positive. I would be known as a, as a post-pop jazz drummer. Hmm. So how <laughs> yeah, did the, so, how did the Herbie gig come about? Paul Jackson, uh, was playing with, uh, uh, started getting really good on the electric bass and he got a gig with little Anthony and the Imperials. <laughs> And Herbie's manager heard him playing with Little Anthony, uh, and on a break tune or something, Paul was doing his thing, and uh, Herbie's manager heard him and went, "Yeah, man!" So he hired. So Herbie hired him, and they did a record with Harvey Mason. Mm -hmm. Then Harvey quit. Didn't really quit, I guess. He he wasn't going to go on the road because he was making a lot of money already as a studio musician. He didn't want to travel. Right. Was that that first Headhunters for, record with like Chameleon and all that on it? Yeah, that was yeah. Harvey. And so um, uh, Paul told Herbie, Lenny White told Herbie, if you're going to have Paul Jackson, you should have Mike Clark, because they're, they're like one guy that can really do this thing. You know? And so um, uh, Paul was my best friend as well. You know? So mm -hmm. uh, he told Herbie about me. 
and that's how it happened. And then I went in and went over and played with him, and he hired me right then, right on the spot. And, that, and then uh, that was it, and we took off. You know, hmm. and um, when I first got the gig, I was playing more like in the Tony Williams, for lack of a better thing to say, I can't play like Tony Williams, but you know, that style I thought I was playing, you know. Right, right, right. And, and Herbie was like, no, 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 we're, we're going to get funky, man, don't do that. So I went back to the the kind of Oakland thing, if you will, that Paul and I were working on, on the side. We weren't working on it. it. It was not my, what's weird about this, of course it happens to a lot of musicians, is that wasn't my real focal point. I was, I didn't know it was going to, we didn't know Herbie's record was going to sell a million. You know, it just was something that happened. Right. You know? Now, did you dig it, though? I mean, because you were saying before that you were more into the, the bop and the post-bop stuff. So were you still kind of like, ah, I'm not really interested in playing this funk stuff? No, when I first got the band, we were stretching out quite a bit. And I was completely into the band. I completely wanted to try to do something new and different with Herbie. I was enamored with his personality. I really dug him. Paul and I were buddies. We were having a blast. I felt like we were breaking new ground. So at that time, I didn't care whether we were playing Three Blind Mice or Eric Dolphy tunes or Sonny Rollins tunes or Bebop. I was just I just really loved what we were doing. But shortly after that, it became it started to become commercial, and they started asking me, "Don't play so much. Don't play so." Don't improvise, and pretty soon they wanted me to play straight, kind of like straight time, and that's when I started feeling like this is no longer my gig. Well, I right. need the money. It's fun to make the money. It's nice to say that you play with a guy like Herbie Hancock, but I really am not a, just a two and four drummer. I can do that. I mean, I played with Sam and Dave and O.C. Smith and Albert King and Albert. I can do all that stuff, if, but man, I, that's not really why I. That's not really why I play music, is to keep... I'm a jazz kind of person. <laughs> and if, any, mean, if anybody follows you on Facebook, they will know that, because uh, I th you're pretty vocal about how you feel about the current jazz landscape. Uh, so, I, I, and I want to get in that with, with... I want to get in that with you a little bit, because I know that you're so passionate about it, and you have your, you have your opinions about it, and, and rightfully so. So what do, you th what do you think about what's currently going on, especially in New York? which is where you're, you're living now. Yes. Um, well, there's a lot of, first of all, let me say there's a lot of great, and I mean great jazz artists here in New York that are brilliant, mm -hmm. some which people may never hear about. You know what I mean? Right, because right, right. There's, no re there's no record companies anymore. So you make your own CD, sells a couple of thousand, you sell them at the gigs in Europe, this and that. So, But there's plenty of great uh, musicians, young, old, and in the middle, all over the place, and especially in New York City. And who's I'm some sure, of the guys that you suggest people checking out? Well, um, I've been hearing a guy named Carmen and Tori. Do you know him? Who plays with uh, uh, Pat Martino? He's great. Carm, Carm's a buddy of mine. I actually uh, I play with Pat Bianchi once in a while, the organ player. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. And, uh, well, Carm's Carm's killer drummer. I love how he. Drums. I, I actually he interviewed him, uh, and I played a I, I played a gig with him before we did like this double drum thing. But he, uh, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago on the podcast. How cool is that? Yeah, he and I <laughs> met through the D Francescos. I know uh, Joey and Johnny. So. Okay. We all well, um, uh, 
well, I you know I dig him. I hear a lot. I hear guys around, but um, what I, uh, I mean, uh, I know he loves Billy Hart, and Billy came from Max, and and all, and there's a huge connection. Uh, um, um, but, but um, you know, I'm not one of those guys that uh, hates what I hear and everything. But, but, uh, I'm also not one of those guys that thinks that you need to. Um, have a new gadget, have a new electric toy, have a new gimmick. Uh, or, uh, the heart of many jazz musicians, musicians, excuse me, is in improvising mm-hmm. and playing. That's why we can play the same tunes and never get tired of it because it's going to be different every time it goes down. Right. You know what I mean? So, right, right. so um, anyway, um, um, I think in some instances, I think. Uh, uh, in some instances, um, and some musicians, I won't mention names, I hear a definite break from the lineage as if, as if the stuff before never happened. I don't care for that so much. Right. I think that's, for, I don't, I'm not saying you have to play da, 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 or play, you know, what uh, Max did or this or that, but uh, because uh, of their struggle on every level and because they invented the stuff I personally my opinion it's all opinion anyway mine is that bring some of that with you you know what I mean Um, who's the guy uh, I met him uh, recently McClunty Hunter is that his name Uh, Uh, not familiar yeah he plays with Kenny Kenny Garrett he's great I really dug what he was doing Um, uh, when I hear guys rolling all over the drum set as fast as they can I find it really boring (laughs) <laughs> uh, and no, no, but I like to. I would pay them money to go hear them without a band and just listen to them blast. You know right. what I mean? Sure, sure. I <laughs> but with a band, it sucks, man. It's right. like, what are you doing, man? What about everybody? You know, it doesn't swing, and there's nothing. I don't find any mystery in it. Whereas right. when you hear guys like Lenny White that can play a phrase, it'll just stop everybody in the club, mm-hmm. and they don't even know what hit them. To me, that's. Um, there's some mystery there, you know. What I mean? You know, <laughs> I think I think. Tell me if you agree with this, because there's there's playing on a certain level that is the mechanical aspect of it, but then there's the whole cerebral aspect of it, and I think that a lot of people get stuck on the mechanical aspect of it, but don't really get into the cerebral part of it. And you know, so how do, how do you suggest that people get there aside from the obvious of just practicing and listening? Um, let me get, well, I think if you get to the, um, musical part of it. And that's like, what I meant what, by the cerebral part of it, not necessarily, um, you know, thinking what, yeah, no, playing. I think I, I heard you. I understood. I got you. Um, yeah. Um, I didn't explain yeah, I think, that very well. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. We're just talking and it's hard to get everything nailed out every time, but I did, I understood what you meant. Um, yeah, I know it's not like we're sitting around with skull caps on, like, you know, just thinking all of it, right. <laughs> you know, right. Um, um. But um, I feel if you understand this, the the music, if you understand the roots, if you understand the language, if you understand the tradition, if you understand the people some as best as you can, what they did, what they went through, who they were, why they did, you know, I was fortunate uh, enough to be born at a time when I met all those guys and went talked with them and interacted with them with the masters, you know. So, so um, but um. Uh, and, uh, 
uh, and if I couldn't interact with them, I'd get the next guy in line. You know what I mean? Who was sure. closest to them? I'd find out every bit of. So I think um, uh, if you use your talent for uh, musical purposes to be uh, to communicate, then that, then and then if you communicate something really nasty, funky, hip, uh, in the cracks, interesting, brilliant, whatever. Man, that's great. To me, that's really the beauty of the thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like, if you really understand the forms of the song and you've done your homework, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is for people, it's better for me when guys do their homework. They know what happened. You don't have to know perfectly every date and every track on every record like some guys do. I don't OCD on it, but I got a pretty, pretty damn good idea. You know right. what I mean? And, right. and it's like, I know most of the tunes, the structures, and the forms to them, and I've become good at learning the ones I don't know really quickly. Like if somebody writes some tricky stuff, I can learn it right away, you know? And so you can improvise over those forms. I play with guys sometimes that really don't have any of that language, and they call it playing open or free, and it doesn't swing, man, you know? Right, and, right. And, and I'm not like a really... Nazi type guy. I'm pretty cool too. I'm pretty liberal and open and loose about it, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if somebody's BSing, then I, I'm not going to really dig that so good, you know. <laughs> right. Like, or or pr give them praise for it. Or, or that. Or yeah, that's even worse when guys are like, "Man, did you hear that?" They, they think it's great, and I'm like, "Yeah, I heard it." But uh, <laughs> you know, another thing, I was having an interesting conversation with a great drummer, Michael Barsamanto from L.A. This morning, we were talking about how sometimes you can be playing with, and I'm sure you've had this. You can be playing, and it's let's say the bass player is kind of dragging, or the, or or the harmony is not quite. They're not quite together, so you have to kind of work a little harder you can't be totally relaxed you kind of have to reinforce things and keep things together you know mm -hmm. and i used to think man maybe i shouldn't do that maybe that's being a little too making everybody follow me or something but when i so recently i decided okay i'm going to follow them when they do that and and see if my instinct was correct or not i don't have to be right about anything at this point in my life that's for sure <laughs> so i just completely relaxed and followed uh, them around and the tune almost came to a halt. It was interesting. Really? Like, yeah, because like, you know, if you're playing and uh, it doesn't feel right, or somebody's pulling way back, or, 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 or too nervous on the on the other end of it, or the changes are not being lined up. Usually, this doesn't happen. Usually, everybody's pretty cool, but, um, uh, you know, when you play with a band that really swings, you don't have to reinforce anything you don't have to uh, pick up the toys after the kids or mine in the store or whatever it right. is you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um uh i was just it, it's it's fun to talk about that because those are real situations that happen to all of us you know i'm sure so, you've had it happen to you you go on a gig and things feel weird just man to, i used to play with this bass player and he was the md of the band and his tempo was ridiculous it was ridiculously bad so he would like he would count tunes off in three, but the tunes in four or like, oh boy. like oh all, boy. or, you know, it'd be like one, two, three, four. And it comes in, it's like, boom, got to, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, yeah. totally different tempos and everything. And he would always just like fire evil eyes at everybody, you know, insisting that they were the ones making the mistake. 
Oh, I played with very famous people who I listened to their records as a kid, and I played with them, and that very thing was going on. They were all over the place and didn't even know it. And, right, right. And, and yeah, it, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a drummer thing because you get good at, at rhythm because that's what we do. So you're you're used to, and if you're used to high-level guys, you don't have any of that. You just go right in. It's like driving a great car. It just takes off, and that's the end of it. You right. know what it's I so mean? easy. It's so easy, but sometimes, man, you know, you're like, wow, this is a job. I'm really earning my money, you know, right. so, and, and, uh, so I was trying to wonder, I was trying to, I was second guessing myself, like maybe I, maybe I'm being a little too strict about the time and the form, man, let me just relax a little bit like I would if I were playing with some cats where it was all lined up and see what happened. Not a good move. The whole thing fell apart. So I learned that uh, somebody's got to keep keep the ship going in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep it going. Yeah, exactly. Which is you know, and then of course because you know you get a lot of vibes. Sometimes when you keep it going, people are bugged. They're like, they give you that look, like you know. But you know, if you don't keep it going, they're going. It's going down. The whole thing's going down. <laughs> right. You know, then nobody okay. looks good. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's a weird kind of a gig being a drummer. You have all that stuff going on. You know, like. <clears throat> Sometimes you can play through it, and sometimes, uh, you, you know, sometimes like if somebody's if I play with a rhythm section that feels things behind the beat, I just widen up my cymbal more and and relax it more. It's not particularly my favorite way of playing when it comes to bebop or post bop. Right. I'd rather have a little bit of a not especially an edge, but a point on the groove, so that way everybody's stable. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes and, sense. Uh, then it's not a matter of somebody feels it this way or somebody feels it that way. People are swinging, you know? Mm-hmm. Now you anyway. had mentioned, uh, you know, a few minutes ago about learning the lineage and, and learning, um, at least where, where things came from. And I, you know, the best advice that I always give to people is say, listen to somebody and then find out who they listen to and then find out who they listen to. So if somebody, because I mean, you're, you're a living legend, man, you're, you're an icon in the drum world. And I know that people, listen to you a lot and say, man, I want to play like Mike. So who were the people that you were listening to? And, and, you know, what was the lineage that you came through? Well, I listened to, you know, I was born in 1946. So, um, when I was five and six, I was listening to, um, my mother liked a drummer named Sudi Singleton and she thought he was great. And so she had some of his records. He was one of the first drummers I heard when it came to my attention that I was going to be a drummer. Then I, as soon as I realized after that night that I went down and played with that band I told you about, I, pretty soon I was asking, who's the drummer on that record, you know? Right. So I listened to Zudi, I listened to Buddy, I listened to Gene, I listened to Hamp, I listened to uh, Barrett Deems, I listened to Joe Jones, um... I listened to, um, uh, then <clears throat> I listened to, uh, uh, Kluke. My father, uh, got a record with, Kl- with Kenny Clark and I started listening to Kenny Clark and Art Blakey quite young. And I was like, wow, listen to that. I didn't hear the four, four on the bass drum. And, uh, um, I heard all they was, you know, they called the dropping bombs in those days, the syncopated bass drum and everything mm-hmm. and all the things that were going on with the left hand and the conversation and the chatter and the deep riot symbol, and I just went through all of them, Philly Joe, Max, Roy, Sonny Payne, uh, I like big band drummers too, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, and so I just, um, I think by the time I was, I guess, 18 or 19, I'd heard just about everybody, I listened to all Candy Finch, I listened to Mickey Roker, uh, Tootie, um, 
and then, of course, I listened to my peers, too, Lenny White, you know, guys around my age group. Um, um, my friends out in San Francisco were Eddie Marshall and Gaylord Birch. They were great drummers. Um, I was interacting with really good drummers too, also when I was young because I, so, and, and also I, <clears throat> I spent some time in New Orleans where I learned, I don't know whether I can really actually play, I don't think I can play an authentic New Orleans thing because I'm not from there and all that. But I stayed there like three months at a time, maybe five or six times as a child. So some of that stuff wore off on me, and I had my own way of uh, incorporating it into my language. I kinda, I'm kind of artist that I never took one person like Max Roach and learned everything he did. I just get like these things that were going on that I that I liked, and then I would kind of make it part of a stew and that stew became my style and I put right. my own, you know, and, and also not just the drumming, but I loved the music that was going on. So all of the musicians were Lee Morgan, uh, Freddie Hubbard, all these people were McCoy Tyner, you know, of course, train and miles and, and, um, Charlie Parker, all these people were, uh, I was, they were all becoming, part of my brain right, right. <laughs> my soul I mean it was like I was listening to this stuff you know since I was a kid so it's been really a lot of hours logged in listening although <clears throat> although I um, although I spent a lot of time listening I'm not the kind of guy that can recognize everybody right away I'd be horrible in a blindfold test I uh, <laughs> I don't know every track on every record even the records I've been listening to since I'm 15 right. you know Right. I'm the same yeah. way, I, I, honestly, you know. Yeah, I just take the vibe of stuff I, I get, like Sidewinder, Lee Morgan. I, I love that I, tune. I do, too. Totem Pole, I love that tune. I don't even know the rest of the tracks, although I've heard the album a million times. Right. See, I'm this kind of guy. I don't uh, study each thing neurotically. I just take what I like, and then I'm gone, and I get on the next thing that I dig. So a, a piece of all of those people's innovation is kind of inside of me some kind of weird way, I guess, sure. inside of me, you know. And um, um, I used to dig Denzel Best, I, uh, Grady Tate, um, Idris, of course, and, and uh, Purdy and Clyde and Jabbo. Almost no blue... There, there's very few drummers that I don't like. I'd have to say it's hard to be hard-pressed to find a guy like, I hate that guy the way he plays, right. you know, or something <laughs> like that. I, you know, I dig drumming, so I'm cool, you know what I mean? Right. With, with other drummers, I'm not like, man, I can do that faster or louder, I can do it better, I don't care. Uh, you know, I don't give a damn, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I really don't, I'm not that guy. And um, so... You know, I'm trying to think of the guy I really used to dig. I never copied him, but Clifford Jarvis. Remember that cat? Yeah, I mean, I know that. You know what? Honestly, I know the name. And right. I don't know if I've listened to enough to make a decision. You know, or to comment right. on it. I should say. Well, I only remember about three records that I had him on. But man, he could play some. St he played some really. It was in the '60s, and it sounded like he was flirting with the avant-garde and swinging, and he was right in the cracks. And he really had a hell of an imagination. 
There was another guy that used to play with the West Montgomery named George Brown that was a hell of a drummer. I ran into him in Europe, and I remember he was on one of those river sites with West when I was a kid. I think the other guy's name was Paul Smith, but this guy, George Brown, really stood out like he could really play the instrument, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I saw him in Europe, he sounded like very modern when I caught up to him. This was before he died, and he sounded like kind of out of the Jack DeJanette type of school or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he played, I don't even know what, you know, something modern like that, where everything was broken up and really, you know, definite you know and uh, Lenny White was a big influence on me because of his symbol beat to me out of the people who have survived and that are still left he's got the greatest ride beat of anybody I've it's just I'm, to me it knocks me out because it's dripping with soul it's just funky man you know what I mean I don't know any other right way to there. put it so what, like, well, what this dude can swing man you know right. what I mean like forget it i mean i go I, anyway you know it's something i like to talk about because um i was speaking with him yesterday and he was saying that many guys nowadays many guys don't know how to play the ride cymbal and think they do they don't even think about it they go dang dang a dang and then they just play their stuff well that's you know what, what i was I mean? just going to ask you like what happens <clears throat> if if you think what you're playing is hip and it's not <laughs> you know what i mean well, you don't you know what you don't know <laughs> Well, hopefully somebody will tell you if it's not, and or you'll be able to glean sooner or later that what you're playing is not hip and do some self-reflection and then do a repair job or to go. I mean, I've had to do that a million times about a lot of, you know, I used to, fortunately, I've recorded enough to find out pretty much what's working and what's not, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, but um, I used to do these things that I thought were really great, you know, like, wow, everybody's going to love this, and I wasn't getting the proper reaction, but it seemed to work out while I was playing, but it wasn't, it wasn't really good, uh, it wasn't working, and um, somehow I didn't know it was, because it felt good, so some right. things can feel good, but they don't sound so good when you hear the bigger picture, mm-hmm. you know, and as my ears opened, and I could hear more of the other humans that I was playing with, not just my own voice, then I got better at editing. <laughs> you know. So let's let's walk through a scenario. I walk into your studio for lessons, and you're like, "All right, let's let's play some jazz." And I play the ride beat, and it doesn't swing, and, which probably would happen because you know I'm self admittedly not like the world's greatest uh, jazz player. So. I walk in and it's not swinging. So, what do you tell me to do? I would show you what Sam Woodyard showed to me, and I would explain about the quarter note. How uh, don't worry about the triplets. Don't worry about fast rolls. Don't even worry about playing anything. Let's just work on that ride cymbal. And I would show you. Now, I, I, um, I'm not saying I got the best groove in the world. I'm just saying my uh, that mine works. I can get it going. Right. And and I learned it from Sam Woodyard. And I'm not. And I'm also not being saying that I can do it like he did. I'm saying that he showed me how he did it. So I did. At 13 years old, he showed me. So I did my version of what I saw thought he told me and I came up with my own way of dealing with it you know what I mean and I show guys how I deal with it and of course you know you're going to play with a different band every time you play so it just can't be one set in stone thing there's got to be plenty of leeway and wiggle room but I have a 
way of dealing with it, and it usually works pretty good. So I show guys that and how to really improve their quarter note. And the same can be said of a backbeat. Guys come to me and will play some really great beats, uh, really tricky, really independent, and have some great um, fill-ins or chops or ideas, whatever you want to call them, phrasing. And their backbeat will sound clangy or weak or milky or, or cloudy or not. It won't be sufficient. It won't have enough uh, meat and potatoes in it. And I know how to hit a good backbeat because I was shown. It wasn't like I just had it that way. I played so many R&B gigs and as a young guy. Um, uh, and there were so many great drummers around that they, I watched what they were doing and asked questions. And so I have a pretty substantial backbeat so i show guys that too you know i mean it, it doesn't just have to be the ride symbol it can be it can be that or or language or or sometimes technique some people's technique um is unstable mm -hmm. and although i can't show a guy how to play at 240 on the metronome i, I can usually uh, help stabilize a guy's technique because you know I've been play, playing so long I can see where he's falling apart, you know, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. you know just stuff like that. It's it's common sense. I tell people a lot of times, you know, you, it, as far as the drum set set, playing the drums itself is kind of like driving a stick shift. You know, you get good at it after a while. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so, and if you have help, you can get really good at it. I've had a lot of help, and and when I get stuck, I go to other drummers that are playing stuff that that are, that's out of my range, and I talk to them about it and ask questions. Still, I love this never-ending process. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting as hell. You sure. know. I mean, there's, there's technique if you like that, and there's language, and there's phrasing, and there's you know, where to put a phrase and where to start and stop a phrase and how clever or somebody can get her emotional or soulful. Well, I mean, just, man, it's non-ending art, you yeah, know? I, I love it. It's like the, you know, it, it never ends. Like you said, it doesn't matter. You could be lived to a thousand and it still never ends. And you'd still be going like, man, you know, I could make this better. It's not quite laying right <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, man. That's, the, I, that, that's what's so great. And uh, my favorite drummers are the, are the drummers who are hearing the band, who play good drums, but the music is what's first and foremost on their mind. They play good enough drums so that their ideas are interesting, but but also they're, they're playing for and with the band because that's what makes the ideas ten times as interesting as when you're speaking a language and somebody turns a phrase a certain way or what have you. you I, I totally agree. And now you mentioned phrasing and not to get too deep into this because we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but I think that there is, I see a lot of players that play without a sense of phrasing. So can you just kind of break that down a little bit and, and talk about phrasing and, and how to improve on phrasing? I think that um, if you understand the structure of the tune, right, this will give you places to hang your hat. Mm -hmm. This will give you something to do and a reason to do it so you're not just blowing and playing drums. You have something to do. It doesn't matter if you play paradiddles or a single or a double or any. All that goes out the window. Um, and you're playing total music. So you're playing. Uh, I'm not saying you're not going to use some of those things 
you got to play the drum set, so some of those things are going to show up, but you're not thinking of it. Of uh, When I was younger, I would play, and uh, if a drummer that was quite good would come in, I would try to play some flashy stuff, or, or when I was playing with the band, I would announce that I was proficient on the drums by some of the, and I wasn't really playing the tunes. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a trumpet player, Woody Shaw, as a matter of fact, when I was 20 years old, was like, I really like what you're doing. You're a good drummer. I want you to use the same drum language you're doing, but play, put those things in the music. Make your phrase, use this. You don't have to play drums. You're, you're a drummer, so you're, you're already playing drums. So you don't have to hot dog or be a, uh, you know, play the phrases that will help perpetuate the swing and have a conversation with the guy on the front line, the soloist, right? Right. Play something to stimulate him, and at the same time, when things relax enough, you can have an actual conversation. And that's when I started looking at it like that. And that's when I started getting my phone started to ring a lot, you know? Sure. When I made that adjustment. But when I was younger, I thought that I had to play the drums real good, you know? I didn't understand. I was learning. I think there's a quote that Steve Gadd said something along those lines. It was like, you know, I could play all the same stuff that everybody else was playing, and but I wasn't getting a call. And the reason was I learned, you know, then I learned how to groove and play along with the music. And he was like, mm-hmm. then, you know, now he's Steve Gadd. That's what happens. That's the payoff. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's, you don't know to do that. If somebody can tell you to do that and you don't, it, maybe it takes you a while to understand that. But I, I think that... Um, for me, I could make the adjustment quite quickly because of those years of, I mean, I would go in and out of having nights when I was playing total music and then other nights when I was playing the drums. It took a while for me to mature, you know what I mean? And it's, it's mm-hmm. like to where it was like now, it would seem ridiculous for me to do anything like that. I'd be like, what? You know, what are you doing? But, um, <clears throat> I mean, I can't, it, you know, anyway, that's gone. But, but I think by knowing the structure and the spirit of the music, you know, um, and knowing the language that people are playing so you can know what's being said to you when guys are playing. I mean, you can't know every note a guy is playing, but you get the idea, you know. Mm-hmm. Then your phrasing, can you can do some things with the phrasing that are really create value for others, which will in turn create value for yourself. Right. Yeah. Something like that. Sure. <laughs> you know, well, you know I, I think that there's a lot of the uh, a lot of the maturing that you mentioned. I mean, a lot of it is an ego thing too. Of like, it's hard to sit behind the drums and not show off. You know, right? If, if you're if you're not thinking musically, you know, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to say, all right, I'm not gonna. Oh, I'm not going to play that that new lick that I've been working on all week or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, you know, it, uh, drums are interesting because it is a physical instrument. So when you sit down, most of us, when we sit down, let's say we walk into a room to to shed and there's a drum set there. You don't sit down usually and, and play really pretty and quiet. And so you're going to sit down and kick some butt straight off. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, you know, because that's just kind of part of it. And good drummers are... Or like that, they're like Elvin Jones was fierce, man. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, you know, so, but I think once you channel that into, you can channel all of that energy into playing your butt off, 
and have it be musical. That's the that's when I'm at my best, when I have the both worlds combined. My hands and feet, my body is working uh, perfectly or as close to perfect or whatever that means, working really, running really well on all eight cylinders or whatever, right? right. And, and my musicality is jumping off and everything is like spontaneousness. There's no thought, it's just happening, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I'm at my best and that's when I feel the best about things. You know, mm-hmm. so and I yeah. agree. I mean, like you said with Elvin, I mean, he sounded like a freight train. You know, like he didn't he he played he didn't play pretty, quote unquote. I mean, he played beautifully and and musically. You know, but he sounded like a freight train. And but with you know was everything was so musical that it was amazing. Yeah, he, I think it was Lenny White that said one time, or somebody may I forget who it was. I read this somewhere. And it said he sounded like a choir of African drummers. He did. He did. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It was like, and he was a genius because when you listen to what, there's a sample of phrasing, like everyone you hear him playing all that stuff, it goes perfectly with what Train was playing or with McCoy or whoever, Tommy Flanagan, whoever he was playing with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, you can hear in his early records when that was that thing was starting to form, and then it took hold, and he brought it all the way to fruition. What was he said? He what did he say? He said something like, "When I got with John Coltrane, um, it solidified all of my ideas." That gig, being on that gig, made, and then he knew his what he was thinking, what he was trying to get to was correct. He said, "I didn't want to play the standard forms," is what he said. He didn't mean the forms of the tune he meant the standard stuff the conventional mm-hmm. drumming you know right. what i mean he, sure. he just didn't want to do that you know and that, that's how i felt when i played actual proof i didn't want to play boom i wanted to play my stuff right. <laughs> musically but my stuff anyway, <laughs> that is know. a kick-ass groove man i gotta say <laughs> thanks it's hard as shit to play too <laughs> you know, it was easy as hell when we did it. It just went down perfect. It really did. It just really? went boom. Yeah, one take, bam. You know what I mean? And it was like, uh, but but Paul and I had at that time a million rhythms in that in that vein because we'd been playing together for years before we met Herbie. In fact, on Thrust, I I tried to play everything like that, not like actual proof, but you know that style. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, make it more. Uh, they didn't use words like pocket in those days, but they were trying to get me to not blow so much and to keep it straight, you know, right. which, um, you know, I didn't really appreciate. I didn't really understand why, but I, it was money driven, which is, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, let's, let's make some money. And I was like, let's play, let's play. But you know, <laughs> right. Hancock, he, but you'd already played with Miles and all of the records he made before that. I mean, he'd been playing. I was just getting started. So I wanted to, I wanted, you know, I was immature. I wanted him to do what he'd already done. Let's do that. You know, you go like, man, I already did that with Tony Williams and those guys. I'm not going to do that again. What are you talking about? You know, I was like, well, why not? Come on, man. You know, <laughs> I was pretty young. <laughs> right. You know, it was pretty, like, I, I couldn't understand why he didn't want to play that kind of stuff. You know, like, come on, man, let's, you know, anyway, hey. <laughs> <It was laughs> did you, so did, did you get along with Herbie when you guys played, oh, or was it? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah absolutely. You no, know, he was a great guy, a really nice guy, and fun and accessible and a blast to hang with, and a blast to play with, a blast. Mm-hmm. 
So not what I mean, you know, um, there were politics going on in the in the in and around the band that I didn't much care for. You know, I got you. Yeah. And uh, um, but uh, I'm not easily intimidated. So I didn't really get too rattled by any of it. And I didn't take any. I took the music serious, but not the bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but I could see right away after thrust that they were heading into a real commercial zone. They hired a guy that played rhythm guitar and couldn't take a solo. And uh, they started playing, asking me to play real, just play time. And I was getting, I knew I wasn't going to stay long at that point. I was looking for something. I was like, I got to get out of here. I didn't, I wasn't mad at anybody, but you can't stop. You can't tell a band leader what direction to take, especially a guy like that. Are you kidding? So I had to go out and, find my way through the world because he kind of just i kind of found me when i was quite young and i hadn't gone out and played all my stuff yet by the time i was there you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you still have a bunch of stuff to prove and you're like man i'm just not gonna lay down and (laughs) yeah that's how i felt i was young and i would those guys had not uh well herbie anyway had played a lot of he'd made a lot of great records and done a lot for years and years and he was ready for whatever he was he was doing and i wasn't and so I wasn't at one point I was the right guy for the gig. And then it became a point where I was no longer the right guy for the gig. So I was trying to get out of there. Right. And I found, uh, and Eddie Henderson had told me he had a five night a week jazz gig coming up at a club in San Francisco. So I went and I played with him and it was fantastic. And the gig lasted a year and a half, five nights a week, a year and a half jazz gig. You never Jeez. in town. <laughs> nice. You, yeah. It was almost like, Really? You know, (laughs) and the bread was good, you know, and he hired a bunch of great musicians, Dave Liebman, Carl Sanders, uh, Julian Priester, a bunch of guys went through that band because the band lasted for quite a while and um, logged in a lot of hours playing post-pop with those guys. I got to really experiment and find out a lot about uh, what should and should not happen, you know? Sure. Yeah, it was great. You can learn a lot five nights a week playing with with some cats, you know. Oh man, I'll say, you know, wonderful. Now you would you would mention, uh, you know, being young and and playing with Herbie, and then and then going through the maturing process of, you know, of learning what to play and what not to play with with these guys um, when you got that when you got that five night stand. So, and part of that growing process is you know failure and overcoming certain mm-hmm. certain. Uh, Certain things, you know, if, if you may not think you're good enough or you, you may fail or not get a gig or something like that. So what are f- some failures that, that you've had that you've had to overcome that, that you really, you know, question, questioned your, uh, your, your drive to keep going forward? Um, well, at one point, I was a guy that was waiting patiently, dying to be discovered and terrified of being found out. You know, right. in other words, I was young and I didn't have the correct confidence. So I had a huge ego. I thought I was as good as anybody on the planet. And I, and I wasn't as good as, as, as anybody on the planet. I was, as, I was a good drummer, but you know, I wasn't in the league of some of these guys at that time and nor am I now. Now I can admit it. And I'm like, Hey, ain't no thing. But 
uh, I would overplay in Gorilla the music and play single stroke rolls blasting all over the drums and all kinds of out profound polyrhythmical ideas. I don't know how profound they were. I thought they were, you know, <laughs> I, and, um, and I don't think it was that musical, but I was sort of becoming a drum star, if you will. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, then I ended up with Brand X. And uh, which was a kind of a fusion band, and I could blow like that with them all night. So it was kind of like being with them. It was kind of like being with Hendrix or something. I could really let the cat out of the bag. We made two great records, what I consider great for the time period, you know. And then I came back and moved to New York and started playing jazz in New York. And then I was trying to improvise like Elvin, Tony, not like those guys, but play, play, blow, bash, crash. And then I started, uh, uh, and I used to listen to Jimmy Cobb all the time when I was young, and I went back and I started listening to him live, and he was just sitting back there tipping, man, and it felt great. And Al Foster could play a tremendous amount of drum stuff, and sometimes he would, but sometimes he'd sit back there and just swing and with a great groove, and I started checking all that out, and I started questioning whether I could really be happy playing like that or whether I could accommodate different things. or uh, I started losing my confidence. So in New York, I was forced to, I started getting a lot of calls based on the gigs I'd done in the past, and I don't think I was emotionally ready. But what they forced me to do was to swing and stay in the pocket and tip and get my bebop thing on and forget about blowing and bashing and crashing and all this stuff. And I played with the hi-hat on two and four and played just nothing but uh, the language from like the 50s for about 10 years. And then I started to experiment and take it out and play how, whatever I feel like. But that period of 10 years did something to my phrasing and to my playing that was invaluable. I can't even, I'm not even sure what it was, but it made my thing feel like I'm on time. You know what right. I mean? Sure. And I'm, I, I'm not perfect, and I make the same mistakes everybody does, so uh, it's not an ego trip, but I'm pretty much on time with my thing because I, I developed, there was a lot of gigs during the 80s and 90s, so I worked four to five nights a week plus touring, and I really developed a pretty good pocket and a pretty good understanding of what to do. So I'm, if I play with guys, it's probably going to be okay. I'm not going to say it's going to be the uh, end-all, be-all performance, but it's probably going to feel pretty good, and I'm going to make the band... Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, uh, it's going to be okay. It's right. going to feel good. It's going to probably swing, and I'll get some good ones in here and there. We all will. I'll leave everybody plenty of room. <laughs> I kind of know what to do. Sure. And it was from that 10 years here, because before that I was trying to be a huge drum sensation, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and uh, after the Herbie gig. And the Herbie gig, I was actually honest. I wasn't trying to be a drum sensation, but, you know, I got to meet through that gig, all of these drum sensations, I'm like, well, I want to be one too, you know? Sure. And it was the seventies and you know, everybody was going for it. So, Hey, I was just kind of in that. And I played a lot of gigs where it, oh, if every once in a while I'll see a video or hear something that sounds like really good drumming, but the, but, but somehow it doesn't appeal to me anymore. Hmm. You know? <clears throat> yeah. It's not just, I'm hearing like, mm, that I was, he was about me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kind of go like, yeah, okay, Clark. Oh, well. <laughs> 
you know what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So <laughs> anyway, like, and somehow or another, I'm, I'm a better guy for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So anyway. what advice do you have for people that are, that are coming up now that are, that are trying to get to that point and, and you know, that, that need to come to grips with, you know, it seems like you came to grips with what, what you're good at and what you should be doing and, and what you were, what you were put here to play, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I think it takes, uh, it's taken me a while to get to that. And, um, um, I would say my advice would be to l- listen to guys that are ahead of you in growth and development. Listen to what they have to say. Try to find any of the masters that you can, people who are really doing something that you like and try to get to know them and understand what makes them tick, what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, get as much, uh, log in as much time as you can playing with the band uh, so that your that your experience is playing music not just playing whatever your instrument is and and so that your experience becomes knowing how that instrument fits the music you know that's important mm-hmm. and learn to read your butt off learn to write music because it's a new who did there's no record company who knows whether there's even a music business so you better be well armed when you go out there, I was at it came at a time when all you had to do was be good, you know? Right. And, but now it's deadly. Now you have to be a businessman. You have to understand the business. You have to know the agents. You have to know the promoters. Oh man, it's non ending, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So business education is important. All of that, you know? I would say in the old days, I would have said, no, nah, don't go to a music school, learn it out here in the street like I did. But now I would say definitely if you can go to a college, especially where there's great teachers who are great musicians with track records, that's the guy or girl. Those are the people to study with. Mm-hmm. You know, This is my opinion, so it's not etched in stone. It's what I think. <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, <clears throat> it's different for everybody, but something like that ought to do it, you know. Right. <laughs> and I also believe in determination. Never say die, ever. Right. Never give up. You have little days when it seems like the universe is saying, you suck, you can't do shit, you ain't going to make it, nothing's happening, it's over. And then, but you have to weather through those depressed periods when they jump off to get to the stuff you want to do because all of us that are artists catch those days when it's just not great, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And to try not to let the, I try not to, at this age now, I still have those moments, but I don't take them very seriously. I don't let it wreck my week. It's like, okay, I realize I'm in a depressed place. I'm not going to let it blow my mind out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get right mm-hmm. back on the horse and as fast as I can. So I think determination plays a big role in how far you're going to go or not, how you see yourself, you mm-hmm. know? And, like, and you know, you're... You're self-employed as a as a musician too, so it's like, you know, there's going to be. It's just like any other business, you know. There's bad days and good days, and you have to ride that roller coaster and realize that, you know, or keep an eye on whether the good is better, you know, is better than the bad. Well, absolutely, you know, absolutely, you know, like uh, that's right, that's right. To me, it, it, if I had it to do all over again, I would have made better choices, but I certainly would have played drums and I certainly would have played music, and I would even. Uh, told certain people no and just played. I would have moved to New York when I was quite young and just toughed it out on the bebop side, you know, right. 
But, you know, in the 70s, I was still quite young, and all of those gigs were coming to me, so you didn't want to say no. We all needed rent. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Famous, guy, famous guys are going to call you. You're not going to go like, nah, man, I ain't going to make it. Then go down and play your little gig for 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so, uh, you know, anyway, like something like that. <laughs> Is that one of the one of the different choices you would have made moving to New York earlier? Yeah, absolutely, because I would have got here at a time when I could have got involved much more and, and it was still there were still a million gigs and a million cats and a million clubs and there was a scene. Now there's no scene anymore. I mean there's kind of a scene, you know what I mean? But it used to be a, even when I moved here, I moved here in seventy eight or seventy nine, I guess seventy nine or eighty, seventy nine or eighty. And um there was a scene. It was the end of about the last ten years of the scene, but I got into it, you mm-hmm. know. And sure. uh, it it was great. You know, so I got, I, I, uh, this is where I learned a lot about playing jazz music is in New York. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a place to do yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it is actually, still is, you know. And, um, but anyway, that's kind of my story. <laughs> and I, I'm still with the Headhunters. We still tour. We have a, a nice band with Bill Summers and I. Donald Harrison plays when he can. Um, um, Stephen Gordon plays piano and we use different bass players um, um, Richie Goods played for a while right now he's with Chris Bodie so he's not playing uh, Chris Severinsen out of New Orleans is playing we usually get a New Orleans pretty much a New Orleans band except for me right. and um, um, I'm enjoying that music again um, right now I also uh, have the Wolf and Clark expedition where Michael Wolf and I have a record coming out on Random Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been um, actually I've been following that on uh, on Facebook. Right. Well, that's coming out soon uh, in February, and that features um, Haley Nice Wanger, a great saxophone player, also Wallace Roney and, uh, um, and uh, Daryl Johns on bass, and Christian McBride on bass. So it's a hell of a uh, record. We're, we we've already got some gigs coming up. Uh, we're going to play the Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis. And we're going to play uh, so Wolf and Clark Expedition. We're really putting a lot into it. We're really trying to get that going, and so we're um, we're, we're targeting Europe and and uh, clubs throughout the United States. So I'm really waiting for that one. To, I'm excited about that. You awesome! Know? I'm definitely picking up a copy of that record when it's done. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think you'll like this one. It's pretty good. So when are you expecting to release that? I think it's February 18th or something like that. I don't know the exact day, but it's definitely in February because we have some gigs. We're playing Snug Harbor at the end of the last weekend in February. And Michael Wolf is a tremendous um, writer, arranger, brilliant pianist, jazz pianist, and, and he can also play the blues and play, he can play anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so I'm excited about that, uh, real excited about that. I don't know why I wasn't talking about it earlier, but uh, um, that's my main focus is the Wolf and Clark thing right now. I really want to get that. Um, I'm really enjoying the interaction between me and Michael and the other players. It's really high level and it feels good. Right. So, yeah. So well, how, how often are you guys, um, you guys are gigging in New York, aren't you? Well, we do. Uh, we did the Jazz Standard here recently. We were just getting ready to do the Knickerbocker, like a month run of weekends, but somehow it fell apart. Uh, something happened there. And then we, uh, we just went out to Yoshi's and played out there, and then we did something uh, 
um, for a jazz school out there, and we we're getting ready to go to we're going to Cleveland and play Nighttown, and we're playing uh, the Jazz Kitchen, and um, we'll probably go into uh, Albuquerque, and uh, I forget the name of the place there, um, Art Center there. And uh, and then we're looking at Europe, so we're trying to get that going, man. That's you know awesome. what I mean? See, I really believe in it. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a good performance live. It's a good solid band with a lot of goodies going down. It's not just a straight uh, uh, musical. It's just not. It's not conventional. It's, it's it can go anywhere, and and we don't know what's going to happen. So it's exciting, man. You know, for us, <laughs> that, makes, exciting, that makes it exciting for everybody. It is, yeah. We're kind of like, oh, what are we doing? What, what just happened? Oh my God! Okay, right. you know. <laughs> so that's cool, you know. <laughs> I'll have to keep it out. Next time you guys are in the city, man, I'll have to I'll have to come check you guys out. Definitely, please do. Yeah. I, I now, where are you? Are you in Philly? Is that right? No, I'm in the city. Oh, you're in the city. Oh yeah. man. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I'll keep you posted then when it's on. You know what I Good mean? Good deal. Yeah. And, um, and like no, I'm, I'm originally from Philly, but but I live up here now, so. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, so you must know Jimmy Bruno and all those cats, right? Yep. Yep. Do you know Dylan Taylor? You know Dylan? Uh, I don't know Dylan Taylor. Ba- bass player, jazz bass player, and uh, yeah. Um, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know Joey D and those guys, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Did I, you I, play with those? Uh, I've never played with Joey. I put out a record with Johnny, his brother, the guitar player. Uh, I guess it was two or three years ago. I put out a solo record, and Johnny played guitar on it. I see. I see. And yeah. did you play? Did you play with Pat there as well? Or yeah. So okay? the the organ player that was on the record um, couldn't do some dates, and then Papianki was doing some dates. So it was me, Johnny DeFrancesco, and Papianki. Great man. So you're you know those. I haven't played with Bianchi yet, but I'm dying to. He's, I love what he's man, doing. Man, he you know, is like, he's killing. I just started a little organ trail with. Uh, um, we've got some gigs coming up in January. One at the Falcon Theater, um, and it's with Brian Charnett on organ, who's really killing, and Tom Guana, who plays with a lot of. He's got his own thing, and plus he plays with Lenny White and a lot of. He's been around uh, for a minute. A, gu- a great guitar player. He's quite something. You know what I mean? Right, and also, right. nice. Yeah, if, if you're out, I'm playing with Jack Wilkins. And Andy McKee, January 2nd at the Catano. That's slamming. I've been playing with Jack Wilkins for years, and we still play together quite a bit, and it's always really good. Nice. You know? all, these yeah. dates, all these dates are always on your site, right? They're on my new site. Yeah, they are. Okay, yeah. cool. You know, yeah. and, and for anybody out there listening, it's, uh, it's drummermikeclark.com. So if you are in New York or anywhere, check out where he's playing because he's traveling all over the place. And there's a lot of listeners in Europe. Um, you know, a lot of the podcast listeners live in Europe and, and overseas. So definitely check out drummermikeclark.com if you want to check out some of these gigs so you're not left in the dark. And it's not just Mike and I here talking about getting together, listening to music and or Mike playing and me listening. <laughs> Yeah, one guy in the audience, you know. Right. <laughs> and I'm buying the drinks. What's wrong with this picture? Now? Wait a minute. I got that. Oh, hey, man, listen, Nick, I'm going to cut out, man. Uh, did we do it? I mean, yeah, man, it was, it was perfect. Okay. I appreciate it. I really do. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to, to talk to you. Like I said, man, I've been a huge fan of your work for, for many, many years, so it was great to chat with you. Cool. Well, nice to talk with you. And let's meet live since we're both in New York City. You let's, know what I mean? And, let's do it, man. Awesome. Okay. Mike, thank right. you again, man. I appreciate it. Okay, so do I, man. Thank uh, you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. See you. So there you have it, the one and only, the great 
Mike Clark. Be sure to check him out at drummermikeclark.com and thank him for doing this interview. Also, you can check out this whole interview, all the show notes and everything that we talk about at drummersresource.com forward slash session 80. And don't forget, there's show notes for every single interview that I do. So please get on there. Leave your comments. I want to hear from you guys how you're digging the podcast, what you like about it, what you don't, or anything particular about any of the episodes. Head over to drummersresource.com and there's show notes for every single one of these podcasts with all the stuff that we talk about links to it there's videos on there. there's all kinds of stuff happening on there so check this out drummersresource.com forward slash session 80 and again thank you to boso drumsticks the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks for sponsoring the podcast and offering 20 percent off to the podcast listeners just go to bosodrumsticks.com and use the promo code podcast and you'll save 20% off your entire order, plus they have free shipping over $30. So it's a win-win situation over there at bosodrumsticks.com. If you want to get that checklist from me to learn how to really promote yourself online and with the five, or the six things that you need, six, six is better than five. So you get the six things that you need to, uh, to market yourself online as a pro. Check it out at drummersresource.com forward slash checklist, and you can get that 100% free. You know, that's how I like to do it. I like to give you guys stuff for free. Head over to drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource on Instagram at drummers resource and on Twitter at drummers R source. And please leave me some comments, leave me some comments, leave me some comments on the show notes. And also if you would like to rate and review the podcast, I would love you for that. And I guess that's the end of the messages. Thanks so much for listening. And until the next podcast, keep on drumming. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. (laughs) 